The theme of the service so far, so far has been the limitation of man and the enormity of God. I hope you've picked up on that. I want to thank Pastor Ben for arranging the service. It's been a real blessing to my heart. The limitation of man and the eternality of God, his sovereignty, his potency. That is the theme of my life's passage. The one that God impressed upon me uh, soon after my call to pastoral ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Perhaps you can relate to this. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, not many, according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the theme of that passage, my life's favorite passage, my calling, but that's also the theme of the Joseph stories. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 37, and I want to work with you through uh, Genesis 37 today, the opening act in the Joseph story. His story goes from Genesis 37 through 50. There's a marker at the beginning of this chapter in verse 2, actually, that uh, says these are the generations of. This is the 11th time you've come across this statement in Genesis. This is the 11th major section. The author Moses is informing us that he wants to spend these chapters reflecting what became of Jacob. And he's going to primarily tell us what becomes of Jacob through one of his sons, Joseph, in these chapters. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of glad that he does that. I'm, I'm a little tired of Jacob, uh, personally. We've, we've had uh, maybe a little bit too much of him. We'll, we'll get a little bit more at times, uh, but we're going to turn our attention to Joseph in the next few passages here. Joseph, of course, was the prized son that sprang forth from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. May it never be said of us men that we have a favorite wife. (laughs) Or that uh, perhaps a better way of saying this, our wife is, of course, our favorite. (laughs) The opening act of Joseph's story begins with dreams and deception. While there are many ways to look at Genesis 37... The opening part of the story, we're going to trace the scenes through locations. As locations shift in this chapter, so do the scenes. There are three scenes and three general locations. The passage starts in verses 1 through 11 at home in Hebron. It moves in the middle of the chapter to Shechem and Dotham away from home and then returns at the end of the chapter back to Hebron, to Hebron. So as we work through this passage, that will be uh, the, the way we trace the action in this opening act of Joseph's career here. And so things start with hatred at home. If I were 
titling scene one, I'd call it Hatred at Home, verses 2 through 11. In these verses, the opening scene, uh, we, will, we will come across three reasons why Joseph's brother's anger escalates in this passage. I think Moses intended to organize it around these three reasons, and so that's what we're going to emphasize here today as well. And so it starts with the first reason, Joseph's brothers despise him because of his father's love. Why don't you look with me in verses 2 through 4. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. In the opening of our story, Moses uncovers several factors that demonstrate growing hostility in the family of Jacob. First, he tells us that Joseph brought a bad report against his brothers. Specifically here, it seems that he brings a bad report against the brothers who are the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. There are four of them. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. I find the the actual wording in the Hebrew text to be really helpful here. Uh, First of all, the word report. Uh, That is a word that is rarely used in the Bible. The only other time it's used in the Pentateuch, it's used of the evil report, the untrue report that the ten spies bring back regarding the promised land. And then when I find that word report in other places in the Old Testament scripture, I would say this, I think it's always used of untrue reports. Now to this, Moses adds an adjective to make it quite clear. He uses the word evil or bad. And so this could be literally translated that uh, Joseph brought an evil, bad report, or an evil, untrue report concerning these brothers. I'm sure the brothers weren't too pleased that Joseph somehow misrepresents him to their father, Jacob. But you know, as I was thinking about this, I think we probably all can in somehow relate to a little brother or sister who is creative in his tattletaling. I'm an only child. I've been sheltered from much of this. Uh, However, um, I can relate as well. We've all probably experienced this in some way or another. Can you imagine this? Dad, Naphtali and Dan, they're not taking good care of the sheep again. Gad and Asher, they forgot to water the sheep today, Dad, but I took care of it. Gives a bad, evil report about them. But then we learn that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons. He's perhaps the only person in this entire chapter that loves Joseph other than himself. In this passage, he loves Joseph and more 
than his other sons. He shows favoritism toward them. He's evidently learned nothing from the dangers of favoritism in his family. Now, again, in many large families that I've interacted with, there is often a regular debate about which child is the favorite. Perhaps you can relate to this debate. In my wife's family, among her siblings, there is a debate about which child is the favorite of her grandmother. And it's rumored that one of those children gets double the amount of cash for every uh, birthday present than the other kids. Maybe you can relate to this. In Jacob's family, there was no question who the favorite was. And that is because finally we're given this vivid picture of his favoritism when he gives him a coat of many colors. He gives Joseph a coat of many colors. There are actually different ways you can interpret this. There is old tradition that says it was a coat with varying colors, multitude of different colors. It goes back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint and the Latin translation of the Vulgate. They would translate the Hebrew as multicolored jacket. However, the uh, Hebrew tends to make us think or, or speaks of a long coat with full sleeves. Like down to the wrists. That's the sort of language in the Hebrew here. And in another biblical passage, this same word is used to describe the garment of a prince, a princess, in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, and so this kind of coat, whether it was multicolored or long to the wrists, this kind of coat, though, was not something that a 17-year-old shepherd boy would normally wear. Instead, this is what a prince would wear. And I'm sure this gift would stir up the covetousness that lied or that lay dormant in the hearts of the other sons. I think it wouldn't help that Joseph seems to find every and any opportunity he can to wear this coat in the chapter. So, you know, I'm sure his coat looks something like this one right here. Okay, so imagine him. He comes out to watch the sheep and dusting off his sleeves a little bit. They, they don't have nice garments. They're sweaty. They don't have long sleeves. But he comes out dressed like a prince over and over again. In response to this, the text says at the end of verse 4 that they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. <clears throat> uh, this is a key statement. I know this because the word hate is repeated three times. It's found in verse 4. As we keep reading, you'll find it in verse 5 and verse 8. And there it's seen with more intensity. They hate him here. And they grow even more full of hatred. Verse 5. And then even more. Verse 8. This is a key concept Moses is emphasizing by repeating it over and over again. And we see the nature of their hatred was such that they could not even speak peacefully to him. This means they could not say shalom to him. They would not offer to him a greeting of well-being because they hated him. They knew it would be hypocritical for them to say one thing that they did not feel. They did not want what was best for him. And so they couldn't say it. Before we go any farther... I think it'd be good for us to ask this question. Is there anyone within our church family 
Or is there any believer outside of this church that you could not say peace and well-being as a greeting to them? You couldn't say it because you don't really feel that way about him or her. Well, do you know this, brother or sister, that that is a denial of the gospel itself. God reconciled us to himself and to each other by the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Don't you dare introduce a dividing wall of partition or hostility between you and another brother or sister when Ephesians 2 tells us that God broke that down. He broke it down. If, there, it's, if it's because of their sin that there's this division between you, the Bible clearly gives us guidance how to lovingly confront or to cover in love, but ultimately, however, we must not let hatred simmer in our soul so that we cannot express wishes of peace and well-being to each other. They hated him so much, they couldn't even say shalom to him. Well, next we learn another reason why Joseph's brothers hate him. Okay, so look in your Bible, verse 5. Joseph's brothers despise him because of his first dream. Look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The reason for their hatred, stated twice in this text, is because Joseph dreamed a dream. The word dream is found in noun and verb form repeatedly throughout the rest of this chapter. This becomes a real problem for them. But they hate him not just because he has vivid dreams, but because he has the audacity to report the dream to them that clearly subordinates them to him. Joseph's dreams about one sheep standing aright, that's him. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what he's saying. And the other sheep bowing down to it are his brothers. The brother's response could be translated something like this. You don't mean to tell us that you will rule over us, do you? You can see the tension rising at the end of verse 8 when, when it says that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And that leads us to one final reason they hate Joseph. It's a second dream. Look at verses 9 through 11. <coughs> it says, And they dreamed another dream. Or then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? 
Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. Perhaps the 17-year-old man Joseph is clueless here or arrogant. He's not reading the crowd very well. Could maybe stop with that first dream. But he decides to communicate the second dream to them again. And his report is of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. I've thought and I have no clear answers. If you have answers how the sun and moon and stars bow and how he would interpret that, let me know. Uh, I, I, I can't quite figure that out. But somehow in this dream it became obvious that they're actually bowing down to him. And then his father speaks up. It's like, okay, so his father's there, you know, maybe during the first one, he hears this thing about the brothers and doesn't really do much, but then he hears this second one, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What'd you just say about the sun and the moon? You expect me and your mother to bow before you as well? You think that's going to happen? I'll point out a few things to help you interpret this part of the passage that I think are important. One is a a bit of a, a... controversy about the moon his mother one of the challenges to properly making sense of this passage is how rachel his mother could bow to him if she's already died you remember back in genesis 35 we read of the the death and the burial of rachel his mother and so there are a few possible ways to explain this it may be for some reason uh, moses take things a little bit out of chronological order he, he's not telling us Okay, everything has to fit this exact chronology I'm giving. So it may be that he's taking things out of chronological order a bit, and perhaps Rachel is still alive. But I think there's still some problems if you do that. Instead, I think it's more likely that either Leah or Rachel's handmaid has become a surrogate mother for him, taking care of the responsibilities of Joshua in the home. And so perhaps it's, it's referencing one of them. But I, I want to also point out the responses of the people that are there. Jacob immediately rebukes them. But did you also see what the end of the text says that he keeps this saying in his mind? Okay, does that sound familiar to you? It's interesting to me that that phrase is only found in one other place in your Bible. And it's uh, the, the Greek form of that phrase is found in one place. And it's Luke chapter 2. About Mary pondering in her mind what was going on. Luke, when he tells the Mary and Jesus story, he wants us to interpret how she's feeling in light of what Jacob was thinking and feeling about his son. He's perplexed and he's mulling these things over. How could this be true that we would submit to to, uh, Joshua, uh, or to to Joseph uh, in this way? Uh, But I also want you to see the reaction of Joseph's brothers here. We've seen all throughout hatred. And then the text kind of culminates in verse 11 when it says they became jealous of him. Which some of the commentaries feel is an even stronger and deeper passion than the hatred. The word jealous could be translated they grew envious of. This is a word that was used of Rachel being envious of Leah for being able to bear a son. This is a word that was used of the Philistines who grew envious of the wealth of 
the line of Abraham. And so here they are envious of him. I think you could say it uh, in modern lingo or English. They hate his guts. And they're envious of his dreams and his special coat and the love that his father shows to him. I'm sure it'd be likely very hard for them to love a brother who is so convinced of his own greatness. But that's how scene one ends. Hatred at home. Things then move away from Hebron in the second scene. The second scene begins in verse 12 with Jacob taking a journey. Look in your Bible at verses 12 through 17. Uh, By the way, the title of this scene I'm calling Animosity Away. So hatred at home, animosity away. Look at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flocks at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he went Uh, So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. Verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Okay, so this part, this scene about animosity starts with Joseph taking a journey He goes away. First, he goes to Shechem, which is an interesting choice of locations. Because this is where his brothers, Levi and Simeon, had wiped out the entire male population. Evidently, things have cooled down a little bit here. They go to Shechem, but the problem is that land can't sustain them either. Maybe they're experiencing some sort of drought here or something like that. So they go to another city, to Dothan. And I want you to remember before this journey what we knew from scene one. These brothers hated Joseph. But Jacob comes up with this plan. He's going to send his favorite son to check on his brothers and the flocks, which is not a great idea. I don't think Jacob recognizes the animosity between the brothers and the sibling strife that's taking place, but Joseph takes a journey. I point out one interesting facet of this Part of the story is this unnamed man. This unnamed man tells him exactly where he needs to go. And I think it's at this point that I began sensing, as I'm reading through Genesis 37, the the sovereign, unseen hand of God who is directing things along the way. So there's this unnamed man who just happens to be in the field and finds him and says, you need to go to Dothan. And he goes. The next part of the story is a crisis. So it goes from his journey to a crisis. And the crisis has three parts. A plot, a pit, and a payoff. You don't need to remember that. But it helps me stay organized. A plot, look at verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said one to another, here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him. And throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that fierce animals devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. That's a very important expression. 
But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he, that's Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father, or to his father. It's in this part of the story, the plot, where we begin to see how deep their hatred actually is. How much their envy or jealousy has grown. Somehow they recognize him from afar off. It's hard not to use your imagination and think maybe it's that coat. That coat. I see him coming. They say, here comes the dreamer. I'm sure they had other Hebrew words to describe him too. That might be captured with English words like pompous, egotistical, spoiled little brat. But their language grows more shocking in the biblical text. They express to each other that they want to kill him. Throw him into the pit. No doubt Levi and Simeon are among the brothers here. They're callous to murder. They killed all the male population of the city with the edge of their sword. So now the plan, let's kill our brother. Throw him into the pit. Moses uses the word killed to describe their intent, which is a strong word that's not been used in the biblical text since Genesis chapter 4. When Cain struck his brother and murdered him in a field, and his blood poured out onto the ground. I want to point out a few other things here. This part of the story and this plot. Their plot not only involved the plan to murder him, but they, they had a cover story. They said, well, we'll just say a, you know, an animal came and ate him. You could sense the hatred in their words as well. They, they can't stand his dreaming, so they say, here comes this dreamer. And then later they say, we will see what will become of his dreams almost feel the hatred and bitterness. The irony is, what these puny brothers are intending to do is the way that God is going to bring fulfillment to the dreams. Again, you see God's sovereign power. God reigns. He is at work here behind the scenes. Finally, in this part of the text as well, I see Joseph's life is saved by an unlikely source, at least human source, that's Reuben. Reuben, the older, older brother, had just been immoral with his stepmother before this, and he argues to spare Joseph's life. We don't know why. It's now that his conscience is stirred a little bit. Regardless, he plots against their plot. It gives them an alternative to shedding blood. I say, although Reuben is the human cause for his possible salvation here, behind the scenes, again, God's providence is at work. The Almighty One is working to deliver Joseph and direct his steps. As we go throughout Genesis 37 through 50, and we read all these passages that are upcoming, and we, we pay attention to them, you'll see it over and over again. We will see time and time again the sovereign hand of God working 
to preserve his people. So this is the plot, but things move quickly to a pit. Look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and he took and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Well, there's not much to say here other than uh, Moses picks up the speed. Things are in rapid succession. The verbs come quickly. He came, they stripped, they took, they threw. I think this quick description portrays the hasty brutality of the brothers as they ascend on this unexpected victim. They rush to roughly assault their brother. The word strip, for instance, that verb is used of the skinning of animals. Strip him of his coat. They rip it off, throw him into a pit. And the story leads from a pit to a payoff in verses 25 through 28. Look there. Then they sat down to eat. You ever see that part of the text? Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. All right, we're going to stop here for a sec. The crisis comes quickly to its conclusion with this payoff. I don't think you can see the brothers' moral callousness any clearer than after they throw him into the pit and strip him of his robe, they sit down to eat a meal. Maybe a meal that he's even brought to them. They do so, I believe, while while their brother Joseph is crying out for mercy. Much later in Genesis, you remember when things go sideways from the brother... They all start saying to one another, did we not ignore his cries for mercy? Their hardness and callousness is unbelievable. I mean, can you imagine this? Joseph, why are you doing this? I'm your brother. Please help me. Simeon, help me. Reuben, Levi. What did I do? Dan, help me. But their hatred brought them to a hardened place. That's when another brother intervenes, presents a solution that will prevent his bloodshed, but I think itself is a bit shallow. Judah. Success suggests that they sail him to median traders. Imagine this conversation. Hey, uh, instead of killing our brother, after all, I mean, he is our flesh and blood, let's sell him. Sell him. Wow, right? It's maybe a little bit better. Not much. 
So the brothers agree, and Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt. The crisis ends here with him in Egypt, and all that is left in the second scene, animosity away, is the grief that Reuben briefly demonstrates, which itself is polluted. Look at verse 29 and 30, the grief of Reuben. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Evidently, Reuben's been away, perhaps caring for the sheep. He's unaware of what's going on with Jacob, and when he comes back, he sees the boy's not there. He tears his clothes, and perhaps he feels some sort of responsibility for this boy. I mean, he is the oldest of the sons, and he calls Joseph here a boy. A boy. But his grief is self-centered. Where is he gone, and where am I? Where am I going to go? He mentions himself twice. Where am I going to go? The crisis ends here with this grief of Reuben. So at the center of the scene in Joseph's story, we see animosity. So much hatred and envy and self-centeredness that the brothers get rid of their brother Joseph. That leads to the final section, which we can deal with very quickly in verses 31 through 36, the third scene, which I entitle Heartache at Home. Things go back to Hebron. Look at verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters, maybe daughter-in-laws here, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. just want to point out a few important pieces from my study of this part of the text that I think will help you really leave this part understanding what Moses is intending to emphasize. First, it says that they sent the robe back to Jacob. The language, honestly, in the original here is not very clear, but it seems that they had a servant take the shredded, bloody robe back to Jacob at first. That's the way I take it. So the servant then asks the question, is this your son's robe? Could you confirm that? Which, if that is true, we learn that these sons are not just deceitful, they're also cowardly. Cowardly. They won't even break the, the news themselves to their father that they've contrived. But I think as you read this final section, I think the real theme is heartbreak. I mean, you have to see Jacob's overwhelming sorrow in this passage. The text not only says that he mourned many days, it says that he refused to be comforted. That he refused to be comforted is very unusual in the Hebrew culture. From our perspective, because 
We have the insight of the biblical author who knows everything about the story. It makes sense to us. I mean, how and you know, how and why would he find comfort from the people who are lying to him? But he didn't know that. He's so overwhelmed that no one can help him here. I think the irony is the people who could help him are the one, are the brothers. They could at any time along the way break the news to him. He's still alive. We lied. Could have given him the truth, but for 20 years, in their callous, hardened conscience, no one says anything to him about it. How could these brothers live with themselves? But that's when, thirdly, in Jacob's final expression, he reveals how deeply he feels pain. He gives a statement, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. The word Sheol is an important word in the Old Testament. It's used 66 times, and this is the very first time you find it in your Bible. The word can speak of two things. It can speak of the grave or can speak of a place of punishment or hell. It seems that Jacob uses it here only to speak of the grave or the place where dead people go. So it may be that he thinks there's going to be some sort of reunion that he'll experience with his son Joseph after he dies. But I think the primary point is not to articulate his theology of the afterlife. Instead, he's emphasizing with the strongest language that he can that he's not ever going to stop grieving in this life. I will continue to mourn the whole way till I go down into the ground. That's the opening act. As we go through it, I was thinking at the end as a study, I do all this study, I said, you know, what is the author's aim? What is Moses' aim with this story to his original readers? And then by extension to us. And, and I think it's this. He wants us, he wants his readers to know that God uses even the worst of human actions or betrayals to accomplish his purposes in our lives. In this text, God used a bad report, a special coat, dreams, brother's hatred, an unnamed man in a field, cowardly and conniving older brothers, Reuben and Judah, and a traveling band of Midianite traders to accomplish his purposes, to fulfill his plan. Men and women, as I read Genesis 37 through 50, there's no other God that I want to serve than a God like this, who is so sovereign over the events in our lives that nothing surprises him. And he uses and controls all things to bring about his purposes in our lives. Perhaps you've experienced some, some level of human betrayal, some challenge that you're currently working through, and you just feel like, is this just random? Has God forgotten? Does he know I'm in the pit? And you need to be reminded. 
of Joseph's story. And what's left for us to do today is to rest in him. To trust him. To worship him. To bow to the one who uses all things according to his glorious plan. We can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the beginning of this story. It's so easy for us to see the sin and the hatred in the hearts and the covetousness in the hearts of these brothers and to point our finger right at them. And yet in full transparency, Lord, each one of us do things that bring pain and hurt to our families. There are some here today who might not be cultivating covetousness in their hearts, but they might be cultivating other things that are bringing significant pain to their family. Their own lust, they're cultivating their lusts. They're fulfilling their own desires. And they're oblivious to the pain, the years of pain it's producing in their family. I pray for any of my brothers or sisters here today who profess faith in Jesus Christ, if they're living a life of disobedience to you and your will, that is hurtful to their family, that they would repent. That they would turn, that they would say, you know, 20 years, that's that's too much. I need to tell the truth. I need to get right. I need to run to the cross where there's forgiveness. Father, may we all as well be struck in this passage with a massive view of who you are. You control the simultaneous life events of billions of people throughout history, even in our own world. You're controlling world events. According to your sovereign plan. Lord, help us to bow before you today. Even if we don't understand everything. Even if we can't figure it all out. In this world. Or in our own life. May we be willing to bow. And say. One thing I know. My God is sovereign. He knows nothing ever takes him by surprise. Not the God we serve. Lord, thank you for being such a God that we can turn to and in grace try to serve through Christ. If there's someone here today, Father, who has never turned to you by believing in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, to be saved from their sin, I pray that they would be overwhelmed by your love 
and by your grace to send your son for them. I pray that they would believe today and be saved. And we would give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.